I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay. Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Hi, I'm Liz Winstead. I'm Moji Alawode Al. And we're the hosts of Feminist Buzzkills, the only weekly podcast that helps you navigate the post-row hellscape. We dissect all the news from that sketchy intersection of abortion and misogyny with our guests, the abortion providers and activists working on the ground. Plus, we have amazing comedians to help us laugh through the rage. Feminist Buzzkills drops Fridays wherever you get your pod fix. Listen and subscribe, because when BS is popping, we pop off. M-S-W media the rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase it is the very foundation of our democracy the essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike that there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 146 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. It's Wednesday, November 8th, 2023. I'm Allison Gill. And I'm Pete Strzok. We have a lot to cover today, including the latest in both the Fulton County DA's case and the New York Attorney General's civil fraud trial, as well as the latest in the Colorado trial to keep Donald Trump off the ballot in that state pursuant to Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Yep. And we also have an update on the Republican House committees, including testimony from the former U.S. attorney that Barr put in charge of the Rudy Giuliani Ukraine nonsense the Ukraine clown posse, we called it, and uh, new reporting on Steve Bannon, Pete Navarro, E. Jean Carroll, and New York Mayor Eric Adams's potential legal woes. But first, we need to thank our new patrons. Uh, thank you so much for supporting this show. You make it happen. So here's a list of some new patrons. Karen Lesko, six foot three, two fifteen of Pure Big Macs and Diet Coke. Chris Fairchild, Sophie Legace, Dean Howlett, Mickey Sanskraint, uh, Sandra Denman, This Too Shall Pass, Marsha Southhall-Hritz, Susan Schullenberger, Mary Anglin, David Bowditch has been a douche since sixth grade, okay, <laughs> Sue West, Obscurologist-in-Chief, Claire Jackson, Rachel Jackson, Gary Olson, Amy Scott, uh, George Castanis, and Diana Sigsby. Thank you all so, so very much. If you want to become a patron and get that bonus episode, twice as many episodes, Join our Q&A 
uh, Ask Me Anything Zoom happy hours. You can do that at patreon.com slash aisle45pod, A-I-S-L-E, 45-P-O-D. All right, Pete, let's start down in Georgia, where the Georgia Bureau of Investigation just released their investigative report on the 2020 election interference, most more specifically the Coffee County breach. And joining us to discuss all things Fulton County is legal fellow and courts correspondent for Lawfare, Anna Bauer. Anna, welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, so look, Anna, for over a year now, and you've been following this closely, the, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, which is also known as the GBI, has been investigating a bunch of things, including the Coffee County voting machine breach. And they just released a 392-page report. You published what you refer to as a high-altitude summary of this previous report on the Lawfare uh, website. I'm wondering, what, what can you tell us in broad terms about what the GBI found? Right. And so just for some background so that folks can keep these uh, things separate for context, the GBI investigation into the Coffee County voting breach was separate from the Fulton County District Attorney's probe into election interference, which it also ended up involving the Coffee County voting breach. Um, but the GBI was solely just focused on, in this instance, on the what was happening in Coffee County in the wake of the 2020 election and and this breach that happened on January 7th, 2021, and then also throughout the month of January with additional third parties coming in and scanning voting equipment there. It's kind of hard to do a summary of what is in the report because it is, you know, almost 400 pages and it doesn't really give you a narrative. It's more structured like a police report where the investigators are kind of taking you through different aspects of the evidence that they compiled or that they analyzed during the course of their investigation. But just to give folks a kind of narrative structure to it uh, in terms of what they compiled, it starts, I think, in November of 2020 in the wake of the election that Joe Biden won. And, and we go to Tamatli Plantation, which folks might remember is the plantation that is owned by Lynn Wood, who at one point was involved in, in Trump's post-election efforts to overturn the results of the election. The guy who hung up his law license <laughs> before it was taken away from him, that Ex guy? <laughs> that guy. Uh, and there was kind of this uh, assortment of different uh, uh, people in the Trump cinematic universe, as I like to call it, who assembled at Linwood's property there. It included, as alleged in the GBI report, Sidney Powell, Mike Flynn. There was a man named Doug Logan there who was the, uh, the head of the Cyber Ninjas uh, group, which is you know, later became involved in various efforts to uh, forensically, quote, audit the election or, or election machines. Jim Penrose was there, who's this former NSA official who kind of became wrapped up in all this. So you have all these various folks who are assembled there. They took an early interest, according to the report, in getting access to voting machines and to voter data. And then we kind of jump to Sidney Powell executing an agreement with this company called Sullivan and Strickler that is based out of Atlanta and that does this kind of forensic audits of various uh, computer systems. They, they make things called forensic images that are basically just like an exact replica of, you know, a server or the data that's on a thumb drive. And, and they kind of just go in and, and are able to copy those things and have that information available to people like Sidney Powell. And 
There were some, you know, early instances in which they executed this agreement for work in, it was anticipated to be Michigan and Arizona. There was also some talk of Nevada. So they had like these various states that they were looking at trying to use Sullivan and Strickler to do these kinds of jobs where they would go in and, and get voting data and get various kind of images of election equipment. So we go from executing that agreement in which Sidney Powell is kind of making arrangements with Sullivan Strickler to have this continuing arrangement to then jumping forward to December 31st, 2020. That's New Year's Eve. And there is a man named Preston Halliburton, who's an attorney in Georgia. And he sends, according to the GBI report, an email in which he's requesting under a purported open records request, he's asking the election supervisor, whose name is Misty Hampton, she has now been indicted in Fulton County. He asked her for uh, various different ballots, uh, scans of original ballots from the 2020 election, any ballots that have been discarded. So various things that he's asking for, but but not, keep in mind, asking for images of the server, of the poll pads, of all these various different uh, devices that are used within election equipment and election systems. He's not asking for that. So it's a much more limited request. She responds by saying, hey, y'all are welcome to the elections office anytime. And I, I mean, she literally says, y'all are welcome to our office anytime. And that later becomes relevant because that is what Sidney Powell's attorney, Brian Rafferty, will later argue is this so-called letter of invitation that authorized what happens next. So then we fast forward to January 6th. Of course, the uh, the attack on the Capitol happens. As that is going on, sometime between 12.30 p.m. and 2 p.m., in the report, they mention that Rudy Giuliani in his January 6th committee depositions talks about uh, phone calls that he's having with a man named Phil Waldron, who's one of the guys mm-hmm. who's been kind of involved in these efforts to forensically audit different election systems. And Rudy Giuliani says that they have a conversation about potentially getting more access to voting machines in Georgia. And then we go to around four o'clock that same day on the 6th. And the GBI report notes that that's when text messages start being exchanged between Misty Hampton, the election supervisor, who is telling someone, oh, yeah, Scott Hall, who, again, folks might recognize that name because he's been indicted in Fulton County in connection to this stuff. Scott Hall was messaging uh, or was on the phone with Kathy Latham talking about scanning ballots that that they you know had talked about previously. So then the very next day, that's when Sullivan Strickler, this team that had been involved with Sidney Powell previously that had an existing contract with Sidney Powell, came down to so came down to Coffee County, Georgia. Scott Hall charters a plane that he flies in and he brings another guy that tags along with them. And they come in and spend the whole day in the elections office and copy virtually every piece of of elections equipment that is in there. The GBI report makes clear that this is then later paid for by Sidney Powell's charity defending the republic. And then later that month, there's additional people, Doug Logan, who I mentioned earlier, who's involved with Cyber Ninjas, and then Jeff Lindbergh, who 
who come in and, and do, you know, so-called tests on the election system. They will later say that they did not, you know, touch any of the equipment themselves, but just directed the election supervisor, Misty Hampton, to do various tests. And then we, you know, a month later, Misty Hampton ends up resigning purportedly because of falsifying timesheets. But that is kind of where we leave the story. Oh, and I should also mention, because this is one of my favorite details, or not favorite, one of the most interesting details. It can be your favorite. <laughs> yeah. Um, the night that Misty Hampton resigned purportedly for falsifying her, her timesheets is also the same night that Mike Lindell's private jet flies from Mar-a-Lago to D.C. and then along the way from D.C. to Texas makes a two-hour pit stop in Douglas, Georgia. <laughs> and he will later claim that it's because he was he was making a pit stop to get cooling towel samples from... <laughs> Hardee's. He was going to Hardee's. <laughs> exactly. And Misty Hampton, in a deposition in the civil suit, will, will plead the fifth in response to questions about Lindell's visit. But that does not receive much attention in the GBI report, but I just did want to mention it for folks because it's it's a very intriguing detail. It's interesting to me that the GBI mentions Lynn Wood's place because I think that's in South Carolina, right? The plantation. Right. Mm -hmm. Do they, and this whole crew, also if memory serves, along with like Catherine Freeze was another name, they were flying around not only to Coffee County, but also going up to Antrim County in Michigan, going out to Maricopa County, not all of them all together, but like Patrick Byrne and Mike Lindell allegedly were leasing airplanes and Rudy would like throw pictures up on social media of them in a you know private jet. Does does the GBI report talk about activities in other states beyond that initial sort of like opening scene in South Carolina? No, they they don't. And and I mean I have to say that if we want to get into kind of and I'm still writing a piece, uh an analysis piece, uh, digesting and kind of talking about what I think about the GBI report, but to me, one of its most defining features is what it omits and what it's missing, because there's a lot there that it seems to me that if you're trying to build a prosecution or at least at least just get to the truth of who would be most culpable and you're trying to find out, you know, who was involved in planning this, not just who was there and who was present on January 7th and, and later in the elections office. You would be looking at context clues like, okay, there was this kind of a larger pattern or effort to get access to voting machines, but that really doesn't feature very much in the GBI's report. Maybe it's because they they felt it was in the supporting files potentially, and so they just didn't bother to summarize it in some of these little investigative summaries that that I kind of mentioned because mm. it is very police report like like it's not necessarily trying to give you a narrative and give you context. But I think that, again, I could go on and on about the things that it's missing, but it really does not feature very much in terms of these other efforts and they really did not make much of an effort to interview people like Giuliani, like uh, Phil Waldron, um, people who might have knowledge uh, like Catherine Fries. They didn't try to interview her until a year into the investigation. So they, they really seem to have been narrowly focused on people like Misty Hampton, who was actually there, people like Tati Latham, who was there on January 7th. 
people like Scott Hall who flew down and, and they were physically in Coffee County at the elections office. Who, and just a sort of admin question, who does the GBI report to when they're doing this? Are they sort of an independent investigative entity while they're investigating or is there some DA out there that they're kind of like working hand in glove with? They kind of more or less re- report to the attorney general, uh, Chris Carr, who is a Republican. I am not aware of exactly how much oversight and direction he had in this investigation. And so I don't want to speculate because, you know, again, I'm just not entirely sure what the internal kind of conversations were about, you know, how narrowly to focus their efforts or not. But I mean, I will say that, you know, this is the the GBI is the same organization that has conducted raids on bail fund organizers related to the Cop City movement. So I can't help but notice the contrast between, you know, a 13 month investigation in which they only interviewed 15 people and most of them for less than an hour. And then, you know, an investigation where we just had 61 people who were arraigned on RICO charges related to the Stop Cop City movement. And many of those people are, you know, bail fund organizers accused of doing things like buying, uh, I think it was like COVID tests and like things like that. And I don't mean to say that, you know, we necessarily can compare the two because, again, I just don't know the internal kind of decisions that were going on inside the agency. So I don't want to make too many assumptions about that. But I I will just say to me, again, the thing that's the most defining about this report, even though it is lengthy, it mainly relies on information that was already out there through civil Mm. litigation and through the January 6th committee reports. And then, you know, they did not seem to do a lot beyond that. So it's more like what's not in it. Do they even talk about Trump's involvement in, in Coffee County, the meeting at the Oval Office? Is that in there at all? Nope. The meeting at the Oval Office does not feature in there. They do not mention, uh, you know, the testimony of Derek Lyons, who was mm-hmm. at that meeting, who, who states that Rudy Giuliani at that December 18th, quote, unhinged mm-hmm. White House meeting that Rudy Giuliani was the one who suggested potentially voluntary access to voting machines through boards of elections. I mean, it also just doesn't, it doesn't mention as well that Preston Halliburton, who is the attorney who kind of initiated this so-called invitation the day prior had been representing both Giuliani and Kathy Latham in Georgia at the Georgia legislative hearing on December 30th, where they were trying to convince the the Georgia legislature to call a special session to overturn the results of the election. And then the very next day, Preston Halliburton sends this open records request. The day after that, Catherine Freese sends a message to Sullivan Strickler saying, I just landed back in D.C. with the mayor. We've been invited to access Coffee County systems by written invitation. And then she says, and we're going to start, I'm going to coordinate the details with Phil and and Preston. And and so all these people that the GBI did not attempt to interview. So it's really, there's a lot of omissions there. Well, we we look forward to your write-up uh, on this report, and we appreciate that. I only have about a minute left, but I wanted to ask you 
uh, real briefly about um, just because this past week, Judge McAfee, that's the judge presiding presiding over the Fulton County DA's criminal case, ordered the unsealing of the criminal case dockets for Ken Chesbro and Sidney Powell. So you could just really, um, really quickly tell us, you know, what we can expect from this unsealing and when we can expect it. Right. So, I, look, I, I think as, as background, it's important to say that under the uh, Georgia's First Offender Act, something that you can do is when you enter your plea, you can request that your case be sealed. The, the reason for that is because eventually, if a person complies with the requirements of the act and stays out of trouble, they can get their conviction erased. And all of these pleas that we've seen in Fulton County, Jenna Ellis, Scott Hall, uh, Ken Chesbro, Sidney Powell, they have gotten first offender status, which means that eventually, if they comply with all those conditions, they can have their convictions essentially erased. Uh, so that's kind of the reason why you do it. So they all requested that their cases be sealed. Judge McAfee granted that request orally, but then he came back a few days later and he said, actually, I, I've thought about the balancing of the public interest and I've and I've decided that there is a public interest in un- keeping these dockets unsealed and available to the pub to the public. So he he's he's ordered them unsealed. Uh, as far as what we can expect from them, I actually do not know, Allison, if we're going to get those apology letters that people have been wondering about. As folks might remember, as a condition of those negotiated pleas, the people like Sidney Powell had to write an apology letter. I am still not entirely certain that we will see them anytime soon. So I, I, unfortunately, I don't have uh, uh, an answer for you on the timing and, and kind of what we might see added to that docket. But I certainly will be keeping tabs on it. Yeah, definitely follow Anna Bauer on Twitter, because I'm sure the second those come out, whatever it is, you'll you'll be on top of it. We appreciate your dogged reporting. Uh, and thank you so much for coming on and explaining this to us. Thank you for having me. All right, everybody, stick around. We've got a lot more to get to. So we'll, we'll be right back. All right, welcome back. More new patrons to thank, including Sandra Henderson, Jay and Kelly Eubank, Larry Johnson, Ziggy RN, Daniel Fogel, Doug Ramsdell, Lola Von Braun, Heather Casebolt, Kristen J. Peterson, Todd, David Foley, Katie, Debbie Wilson, Lowell Gilbertson, John Collar or Kaler, Joe Yance, Thomas DePlank, Mary Roberts, Gary White, and Doris. Thank all of you so much. It's just uh, amazing, and and we deeply, deeply appreciate your support uh, on Patreon. You make this show go. You make all of this possible, and and we simply could not do this without having you as part of the team. So thank you all very much. So from Georgia, let's now head up to New York, where for the past several days, Judge Ingram has heard the testimony of Donald Trump Jr., Eric, and today, Donald Trump himself. Now, a reminder, when, when we're listening to all this and all the reporting, the judge has already ruled that fraud occurred. This trial is to determine the amount of disgorgement and what other penalties the Trumps will face, including but not limited to receivership, dissolution of the business, and revocation of business licenses. Now, starting with Junior, I think generally <laughs> fair to say he was flustered and defensive, took took pains to go to the uh, to the court artist and say, hey, make me look charming. Uh, you know, but, mm. because that's what's really important. But he did, at the end of the day, admit that he signed statements of financial condition as one of two trustees of the Trump organization during the time that his father was president. 
The AG introduced a document showing that Trump Sr. signed back on as a trustee on January 15th, 2021. (laughs) Now, why is that important? Because, of course, if you truly believed that you had won the election and you were still president, the entire reason you removed yourself as a trustee, if you're Donald Trump, was because you didn't want that conflict during the time you were president. So on the 15th, January 15th, he was eager and ready to sign back on. So, you know, keep that in mind as you assess whether or not Trump truly felt and believed that he had won uh, the Mm -hmm. 2020 election. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) I tweeted that. Uh, I tagged the Justice Department. Just heads up. <laughs> yeah. If you want to know what the truth is to Trump, look at look at money. I mean, anything done with money is going to be about the most truthful thing or speaking to the most real version of events that uh, it's all it's all about the money. So <laughs> Junior, of course, was followed by Eric. And then at this point during that testimony, uh, Kai's one of Trump's attorneys, went after the judge's law clerk again. And Judge Ungerin expanded the gag order to include Trump's attorneys. And Kai's basis claim of bias on a single hint when he said, well, what is what is the and was asking him and had the attorney talk about and say, what is it that, you know, you're basing this uh, allegation of bias? And Kai's brought up one Breitbart article. And so, you know, it's if you're going to go take on the judge, if you're going to go claim and make, you know, allegations of bias, perhaps Breitbart, one article and only one article is not the, the case that you want to stand on if you're doing that. Now, Ingram said, quote, you can say anything you want about me. There's no gag order about me. And that has been taken advantage of. So it's interesting to me that both uh, in New York and, and uh, Judge Chuck in, in the federal court down in D.C. is doing the same thing, that the gag orders, both Judge Ingram and Judge Chutkin have said they've excluded themselves from the gag order, saying essentially don't talk about staff, don't talk about prosecutors, don't talk about witnesses. But when it comes to the, you know me, the judge, I'm not going to gag you on that. Yeah. And but I mean, Eric was the kind of the same as a junior. You know, it started out. I don't know anything. I don't know anything. I don't do anything. I pour concrete. That's what Eric said. I'm I'm a construction guy. I wear a yellow hat. And but then by the end, of course, he's 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 cornered. You sign this. You sign off on this for Mazars. Did you sign this? Is this your signature? Is this your email? And he has to admit to that. So it it, it those two, it didn't go well for Team Trump. Uh, and then, of course, we had Donald Trump himself testify on Monday for about four or five hours, I think. And we should bring up first, Rolling Stone reported the night before Donald Trump took the stand that Trump's strategy is spite and unbridled antagonism to intentionally provoke the judge to overreact. That's their whole strategy. That's it. That's their legal strategy. Now, Chuck Rosenberg told, um, I think uh, he, he said on MSNBC about a potential appeal that the judge has been professional and restrained. The judge has made a good record, meaning his writings and rulings have been clear. So if the strategy was to goad him into making an error, Trump won't likely succeed on appeal. He says appellate courts look at the entirety of the trial. So while there were a little bit, you know, fireworks here and there, Chuck Rosenberg and, and every legal expert that, uh, that has commented on that agrees that the, the judge has been well within his rights here. Or, or job within, you know, within the scope of his job. The testimony of Donald Trump uh, was contentious early on, but it calmed down as the day went on. And Angoron was not taking his bait, but he did yell at Alina Haba to sit down, sit down, <laughs> uh, which she did. Uh, and then later she said, no one tells me to sit down. It's like, you sat down, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Never surrender. As I surrender, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then the judge said if he if Donald Trump didn't rein it in and stop obfuscating that he would take 
every negative inference because the trier of fact, which is the judge in this case, not a jury, can do that. Now, Trump admitted he signed a guarantee document with Deutsche Bank that said in order to induce lending. And that was probably the big thing of the day. You know what I mean? That was like the big admission of the day. They eventually got Donald Trump to stop soapboxing about how the judge hates him and his properties are worth billions of dollars. And my my stuff is undervalued. Case closed, he actually said at some point. But he did admit that he signed on page 104 a guarantee with Deutsche Bank that this was in order to induce lending. Um, so that was a big deal. Yeah. And part of it is, you know, he's he's Trump has tried to hang his hat on like, look, we paid everything back. Everybody made money. It was all reasonable. But the point in no they, victim. They, right. They were able to to talk about this. Some is like, look, when you inflate your assets, you're going to get a more favorable um, interest rate on a loan. It mm-hmm. happens with individual loans is, you know, and if you go out and try and get like a home equity loan or something that you're putting up, whatever the, the collateral of your assets are, the more you have, the more favorable rate you're going to get because the risk isn't as large. And so by inflating the value, Trump was the argument is, and it's a very reasonable argument, by inflating his assets, Trump was able to get a more favorable interest rate because the bank didn't see him as as large as a risk as he actually was. And so what New York State is saying is actually there were, you know, I think it was $186 million of lost interest that had Trump been honest, the interest rate of the loan would have been higher and he would have ended up paying more profit. So that in fact, there was lost uh, profit to the bank because of uh, Trump's misstatements. But (laughs) talking about the misstatements, it was also hilarious. He said, look, I didn't. He told the court he didn't know his penthouse square footage was overstated, but Trump himself told Forbes that it was thirty-three thousand square feet. And, and as he said, well, it's because they included the roof and the elevator shafts. <laughs> the elevator shafts. Because <laughs> those are really long elevator shafts. They go all the way down. <laughs> oh, for God's sake. And the roof included the roof. Uh, you know, well. It's still, even with all that, it's not going to triple no. the size of the no. thing. It, Trump finished testifying, no cross-examination, because his attorneys are like, get him so off the get, stand. Get him, get get him, him off the stand. Get him off of the witness stand. Right. And, uh, and Goran reminded Trump's attorneys, I restrict you from bringing up my confidential communications. Nancy, I bind you from doing harm to yourself and harm to others. Sorry, a little craft moment there. I restrict you from bringing up my confidential communications. And then Kai's said, or Keys, whatever his name is, he said he intends to file a motion mentioning it and asks Angoron if he intends to just deny such a motion. And that went on for a minute. So, you know, we'll see what ends up happening. But he, the, the judge reminded everybody at the end, like, remember, don't walk out of this courtroom and start talking about me and my notes with my law clerk, which are totally allowed. So we'll see. Uh, Trump went out and spoke, didn't say anything. Tish James went out and spoke and said he rambled, he hurled insults, but the documentary evidence shows he inflated the value of his assets to enrich himself and his family. He engaged in distractions and name calling, but I will not be bullied or harassed. We will hear from Ivanka Wednesday. Then we will close our case. Thursday, there'll be some motions. Then the defense will present their case in chief. Justice will prevail. We look forward to disgorgement and to the remaining counts in our action against Trump and his repeated and consistent fraud against the citizens of the great state of New York. And then she left, didn't take any questions. We'll hear from Ivanka on Wednesday, as she said. And by the way, one of the best parts of today was Trump was asked about a document, his signature on a document from 2021. And he says, I don't remember that. I was too busy dealing with China and (laughs) uh, running the White House and 
dealing with Russia and blah, blah, blah. And the lawyer had to remind Donald Trump that he was not, in fact, the president in 2021. Yeah. And I thought, and, and you mentioned Chuck Rosenberg earlier, and I heard him make this point on uh, MSNBC. Consider, as we go and think about and parse why Trump is answering what he is and how he does it, that perhaps some of the reason it doesn't often make sense is because he is an old man. And as much as everybody is focused on Joe Biden's age and whether or not there's any sort of cognitive decline going on, if you look at Trump and take his testimony at this trial, there is as much, if not more, concern about cognitive decline whether he is talking about is you know being busy with North Korea and everybody else in 2021, whether he's mixing up Obama for Biden, whether he's talking about Hungary bordering Russia. I mean, it just on and on and on and on. There are little indicia of cognitive decline that are, in my opinion, far greater than Joe Biden. So you know, I thought that was a good point. And you know, I don't see any with Joe Biden, honestly. No, no. I mean, he 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 he, he sounds. Like an old man, but he is, you know, again, completely there. I haven't ever seen anything where, like, you know, there are occasionally time where, God rest your soul, Senator Feinstein or Chuck Grassley, you can hear, you listen to him, and you're like, oh, gosh. Or Mitch. Gosh, that's right. You know, there, there, there's some there's some aging going on there, but I've never, I mean, I, I don't, I've not heard ever Biden make gaffes like that. So other than his physical age, when you talk about mental acuity, it's not even close in favor of Biden. Yep, yep agreed. All right, we still have a lot more news to get to, uh, and we'll do that, but we have to take a quick break. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody, welcome back. We have more patrons to thank. Thank you so much to Rebecca Hamilton, Jana, Mike Busey, Jenna Nash, Michael Dreyer, Paula Keys, Shauna Smith-Hartsouls, Michael Martin, the sixth six chic sixth sheep's sick. Nicely done. Brittany, thank you. <laughs> Brittany Carlock, Pixel Mountain, Jacob B, Heidi Miller, Steve White, Maria Roberts, Barbara Darnell, Roberta, Bobby Ann Hayes. I love that middle name, Bobby Ann. John Glennon, uh, Mal Bishop, and Ryan S. Reed. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. From the bottom of my heart and from the bottom of Pete's, I'm just going to thank him on behalf of your bottom of your heart, Pete. All right, we have a few miscellaneous updates for you. Let's start with a new filing from Pete Navarro in his contempt of Congress criminal conviction. And I wrote this, I want to let you know, I scripted this as I was reading it, and you can hear me be very confused and then finally figure it out. So here we go. On November 3rd, Navarro filed a reply in support of his motion for a new trial. This is because he said that the jury, when they were on break before they came back with their verdict, saw a protester with a sign who might have been our friend Anarchy Princess uh, out there in front of the courthouse, uh, who was, by the way, there every day when the jury got there, every day when the jury left. (laughs) But anyway, this is his thing. Uh, And I'd love to report this in a way that makes sense, but his filing doesn't make sense. It's in no particular order. There's no background segment, no argument, no conclusion. Here's the opening paragraph. Of course, the court will recall government counsel's unequivocal observation after the jury had returned its verdict. Counsel had just entered the courthouse through the John Marshall Park and saw no protesters or other activity that could have influenced the jury that had just provided their long-sought conviction of defendant Dr. Peter K. Navarro. The government's misconception is consistent with their entire view of this prosecution, Never before has a senior presidential advisor been charged or let alone convicted of contempt of Congress. Yeah, because never before has a senior advisor to the president broken the fucking law. All right. He then says the government's argument that protesters for or against the insurrection out front of the courthouse could not have influenced the jury. And he says that argument is fundamentally flawed. 
But then he goes on for a page or so about how some of the evidence presented at trial should have been inadmissible. But that's already been argued. So that was weird. But then there are incoherent arguments about why he feels that the jury may have been influenced by that one lady with the sign. And that should meet the threshold for a new trial, but then gives no evidence to support that argument. He doesn't tell you the, you know, the test for the threshold and how that meets the tests, right? He just says it does. Oh, and then I say, this is in the script. Oh, I found the point. Jesus, that was not easy. It was like peeling a turtle. His point is that during the trial, the judge warned the prosecutors about exposing the jury to language that would suggest Navarro was associated with the events of January 6th. The jurors' exposure to a protester outside the courtroom while they were on break that may have connected Navarro to the events of January 6th, and therefore Navarro needs a new trial. I'm paraphrasing that because it, it, it wasn't abundantly clear with the language that was used, uh, but it hurt my brain to pull that argument out of this filing, Pete. Yeah. And there's, look, I mean, this was not a one-time thing where suddenly overhead there was a big blimp saying Peter Navarro is associated with January 6th. There were recurring protesters time and time and time again throughout the pendency of this trial that suddenly suggest this one time, this one time that there was any impact too, that that was caused by the prosecutors or anybody else. I, it strikes me as absurd. And again, I, I, I was, I have not read it in the same detail you did, but it seems like any good legal no pleading it's is stupid. going to like lay out at the very beginning what you're asserting and then go and back it up and give argument and then conclude again. But it, it's... And there's usually a background too, right? Like, but, but, but this is a reply, a sir reply maybe, so maybe he didn't do that. But it was very, very difficult to even understand what he was arguing. But that that's it. He was like, look, the judge said to warn the prosecution to be careful not to associate me with January 6th. But then the jury saw a protester outside and so that associates me with january 6th and so i get a new trial that's yeah. his argument and and as as long as we're talking about entitled white men who think they're above the law steve bannon has a hearing this thursday with the dc circuit court of appeals now you'll recall that he was granted release pending the outcome of his appeal after he was convicted and sentenced to four months in prison so again bannon's been convicted bannon is a four-month date with prison that has just been dragging along that, uh, you know, hopefully we'll see, not a resolution, but at least arguments. Uh, they begin at 2 p.m. tomorrow as you're listening to this. ESAT has 10 minutes for briefing, so not a lot. And the panel consists of uh, Judges Plard, Walker, and Garcia, an Obama, Trump, and Biden appointee, respectively. So, uh, you know, and again, if you want to uh, get some background, you can Wikipedia all of them. Uh, you know, Judge Walker certainly has a very... Uh, Let's just call it an interesting background, as you might uh, expect, uh, coming from a Trump appointee. He spent all of a hot minute as a district court judge before he was then nominated and quickly pushed through by a Republican Senate confirmation into the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. I think he's about 42 years old, so he will be there. Uh, clerk for Kavanaugh, I think, it was a staunch, staunch Kavanaugh defender during the hearings for his Supreme Court confirmation. Uh, anyway, but you know, the other, the other two are, you know, again, uh, Obama and Biden appointee. So we should, you know, I would think it would be certainly weeks, um, maybe more before a decision is rendered, but at least the, uh, the two 10 minutes of argument will be heard this Thursday. And then he'll appeal to SCOTUS and they sure. won't hear it. And then he'll go to jail. <laughs> Ooh, let's hope they don't hear it. We'll, uh, we'll see. Yeah, well, for a four-month thing, I don't know. Yeah, I, and, and for, well, I mean, it's going to be the question about, like, contempt of Congress, but, I mean, I think Bannon has got a uh, 
his status as a, you know, somebody who's a government employee who might claim executive privilege was much weaker than somebody like Mark Meadows, who in fact was right. you know, the chief of staff to the president. So I would hope they yeah. deny cert, but who knows? Who knows? Who, who, yeah, who knows with this SCOTUS? But also this week, uh, Pete, Judge Kaplan, that's the judge in the E. Jean Carroll case. This is both E. Jean Carroll cases, has ordered an anonymous jury for the upcoming January trial, citing Trump's attack on Judge Angoron's law clerk, as among other things. And then goes on to say, in view of Trump's repeated public statements with respect to the plaintiff and the court in this case, as well as in other cases against him, the court finds there's a strong case to believe the jury requires protection. So first thing, names, addresses and places of employment of jurors will be kept secret. Second thing, jurors shall be kept together during recesses and the U.S. Marshals will take them back and forth to lunch as a group or bring them lunch. And third, finally, jurors shall be transported together from an undisclosed location at the beginning of trial. And then after they'll be transported to the same or a different undisclosed location. And then from there, they can go home. So these are pretty heavy protections. Uh, It's not a sequestration, but it's like almost (laughs) a sequestration. But they are allowed to go home at night. They just have to do it for as a group from an undisclosed location uh, transported by the U.S. Marshals. So that's happening in the E. Jean Carroll case. And as the as Trump goes on and violates more gag orders and threatens more witnesses and talks trash about more prosecutors and judges and courts and potential jury pools, it's just going to be more evidence to restrict things like him being able to get information on jurors, him being able to make those statements on social media or to the public or to reporters. Um, If he violates this Judge Chutkin gag order while it is stayed by the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, that will be more ammunition for them to reinstate the order or to justify the order's existence in the first place. So it's I think we're going to get to a critical point where he's not going to be able to say much at all. And if he does, it'll just be evidence to get him to not say more stuff. Yeah. And think about how appalling it is. I mean, around the nation. In the criminal trials of a former president of the United States, jurors and witnesses are having their identities protected because of a past demonstrated pattern of threats of violence by Trump supporters to those people that he talks about. We've seen things where, you know, anonymizing the jury down in Fulton County. We've seen the concerns out of Judge Chutkin in D.C. We're seeing this going on in New York, not just with E. Jean Carroll, but also in, you know, the other cases with the Alvin Bragg stuff. Around the United States of America, in multiple criminal proceedings, jurors and witnesses are having to be protected because of threats of violence coming from the defendant, in this case, the former president and presumptive presidential nominee of the Republican Party, because of his lawlessness and his incitements to violence. And it's, it, it's, it's time and time and time again, all of these things. And they each start referencing each other. I mean, in, in Jack Smith, and I, you, you and Andy may have talked about it on uh, the Jack podcast, yeah. you know, they're referencing when they're asking and rebutting the conditions of Chutkin's gag order, they're talking about things that are going on in New York and in Georgia and across the board. It, it, it's appalling to me. And I don't know why more people aren't talking about just this isn't just a, you know, he he broke the law. He broke the law and he's acting like a, a mob boss or a drug kingpin trying to intimidate people, trying to intimidate the jury. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's it's ridiculous. And it's not just in one, it's not just a like, you know, downtown Baltimore drug trial. It's across the United States. But anyway, but, so we, we talked about, you know, I'm reminded on the bonus episode, uh, we talked about the FBI raid on the home of a uh, Ms. Suggs, who was the, one of the principal fundraisers for New York Mayor Eric Adams. 
And then kind of in summary of that, earlier this year, four people were indicted for making straw donations to the Eric Adams campaign. Two of the four flipped, and it appears they're cooperating with authorities. Now, last week, the FBI raided the home of Suggs, who was, again, one of Eric Adams' uh, primary fundraisers. And in the warrant, it said the government was looking for information related to the straw donor scheme, as well as the fact that the Turkish government, in some way, shape, or form, was involved. And then finally, Eric Adams has ties to Turkey. Well, since we recorded that, and again, you know, thank you patrons to, you know, this is one of the things that you get access to as a result of that. Since that episode, we've learned that NYPD, the New York Police Department, conducted what they call a wellness check at the home of Ms. Suggs the night before the FBI executed its search warrant. So what that means is the night before the Suggs raid, an Internal Affairs Bureau or IAB official requested that the 77th Precinct to NYPD send two officers to her home. And then on last Friday, the NYPD said, oh, no, we regularly conduct wellness checks at locations targeted for raids. <laughs> Which, A, you know, former agents, and I would count myself among them, say they never heard of this practice. And of many people that have been arrested in New York that I've been involved with, I'd never, ever, 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 ever had the NYPD conduct a wellness check. And why that's important beyond the fact that it stinks to high hell is, remember, Eric Adams is a former NYPD captain. So, uh, you know, whether there is now a <laughs> investigation of the Internal Affairs Bureau d- decision, but I, it, it makes it, it makes little sense to me, particularly in a public corruption case, particularly when you have links of presumably one of the primary people of interest in that investigation, if not a subject of that investigation, who has deep ties to NYPD, who suddenly is having NYPD go and conduct this like, oh, hey, yum, no, just checking in, just wanted to see, you know. I, and I think they didn't speak to her. I think they spoke to somebody else to, you know, the, to confirm that she was just there. Just want to make sure you, you know, were ready for possible unexpected visitors in the morning. I want to dust or vacuum or hide files. I, I, I've never, Allison, I've never heard of that. I would be livid. <laughs> I would be livid. And I, I, I hope that there's somebody's looking into this particular part of because did the FBI, somebody in New York field office, tip off the NYPD? Did did the NYPD tip off? Right. And so the way that normally happens, if you're going to have lo- if you're going to have law enforcement activity, you t- you definitely want to tell local law enforcement that you are going to be in the area. And usually that's like, okay. hey, you know, because neighbors see something, they may see cars with lights. They don't know if there's something dangerous. They call in wanting information. So okay, so then maybe maybe FBI told the NYPD, and then yeah, typically you'll do, hey, look, we're going to do, you know, we'll be engaged in law enforcement. Act- it could be very vague, right? You know, tomorrow morning we're going to engage in law enforcement activity on this particular block on the street. Got it. Or it could be, you know, at this address. And so sometimes, you know, if you get a particular address, then it starts getting, you know, and then there are all kinds of worries about, you know, part of the goal in any FBI field office, you typically have task force officers from the local police force. So in, you know, New York, you'd have a bunch of NYPD task force officers and you might give them a heads up, you know, somebody who's sitting Mm. there working on the, you know, public corruption squad or certainly on the joint terrorism task force. You'll just give somebody a heads up. So then my question becomes, did somebody at IAB or NYPD feel the need to, yeah. That's what stinks. I I, I mean, I am racking my brain for a legitimate reason to need a (laughs) wellness check. We do them all the time. We do them Mm. all the time. Mm. Nope. Yeah. Nope. Well, also something that's going on this week, Colorado. There's a trial to to keep Donald Trump off of the ballot pursuant to Section 3 of the 14th Amendment because he aided and abetted or participated in an insurrection. And activist Amy Kramer testified in this trial on Thursday. 
She said supporters believe that the 2020 presidential election was stolen, uh, though she had no idea who did it. On the second day of Trump's 14th Amendment disqualification trial, the defense called her, Amy Kramer, who helped plan the January 6th rally that would turn into an insurrection. Voters have sued to keep him off the ballot based on what, you know, that Civil War era clause in in the 14th Amendment. And at one point, a lawyer representing the voters asked Kramer why she had called the 2020 election a coup. And she said she was speaking metaphorically about the people who stole the election. And then when asked who stole the election, she said, I don't know who did it, but they did. Uh, and then there was, yeah, and they're like, oh, so uh, dark strangers, I think the, the, guy was, the guy said back to her, she's like, I just don't know. I just don't know who. And then there was also testimony from Kosh Patel, who oh, tried boy. to claim that Trump called out the National Guard. Uh, but it, he was wonky about it, right? He he didn't say that he tried to call out the Guard on January 6th. He said he tried to do it in meetings ahead of time, but he couldn't testify what meetings, when or where. Mm. And we know the Secretary of Defense, Chris Miller, testified to the January 6th committee that Trump never called out the Guard at any time on any day. But Kosh insisted he'd heard Trump say it several times in meetings, but he, again, didn't have any details. Uh, we'll keep who, you posted on this trial. There's going to be one in Michigan. There's going to be one in Minnesota. So who who is putting, who's in charge of this defense witness list? Is James Comer, like, moonlighting? Is he going out to Colorado? <laughs> I've got the perfect set of people to come testify. Cash uh, Patel ought to be counting his blessings that he is not facing multiple indictments, but I think he understands that, and that's why he's he's vague about all his answers. I don't recall. Mm. He admitted on the stand that he's getting paid fifteen grand a month from the Trump pack, Save America pack. So that's fun. Uh, didn't he also like pay five thousand dollars for one of Comer or Jim Jordan's witnesses? Yeah, or something his like his he's affiliated with some organization that's lining up, you know ostensibly lining up people not only with uh, counsel, but also with employment. And I, I forget the arrangement of whether he's referring them to that group. There are a bunch of, there's a couple, at least one or two folks who used to work for Chuck Grassley. Jason Foster, I think, is one of them who are, you know, setting up legal representation, but also, you know, getting them, getting them money. So I, again, that Cash Patel, mm. it'll be Secretary Patel if we get to the uh, second yeah. Trump administration. So laugh now while you can. Yeah, Before they invoke yeah. the Insurrection Act and come and take your microphone away. <laughs> Which, you know, they will. Yeah. Um, and speaking of the House, um, we have uh, a couple of stories to get to about <laughs> about the House of Representatives, and we'll do that. But we do need to take a quick break, so uh, stick around. We'll be right back. All right, welcome back. Time to thank our Hall of Famers. Top secret, redacted, redacted, Orkan Norforn, FISA, at Dirt Road Dems. Devil went down to Georgia. He was looking for an election to steal. He was in a bind. He was way behind by 11,780 votes. <laughs> Dr. David, Karen Sherman, Sharon Tikalski, and Star Linus. All of you patrons, thank you, but particularly our Hall of Fame donors, you are a, a, a special group who truly uh, are generous beyond my ability to thank you. So uh, deeply, deeply appreciate your support, everything you do that allow us to put this together. And so again, I can't thank you enough, but uh, your, your support is deeply appreciated. So <laughs> with that, let's turn to some updates. Let's shift our focus to the House of Representatives. Uh, so first... From CNN, the U.S. attorney who in 2020 vetted unverified claims from an FBI informant about alleged Ukrainian bribes paid to the Bidens recently testified to House lawmakers 
that he found some of the material incredible enough to pass the tip along to the prosecutor leading the Hunter Biden criminal probe. However, the former U.S. Attorney Scott Brady also said in his House interview that even though he corroborated some material from the informant, he did not determine whether the underlying Biden bribery claims were true. And he acknowledged that his team never reviewed some key evidence that undercut the bribery claims. Amid the Trump-Ukraine impeachment in early 2020, top Trump appointees at the Justice Department assigned Brady to vet information about the Bidens in Ukraine that was being sent in by the public. This included material from Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani, who played a leading role peddling lies about the Biden's dealings in Ukraine. And now, Allison, you may remember part of this, the, the part of the frustration I think at least I had, and I'm, I think a lot of other people did too, is there were other ongoing investigations looking at disinformation, not only by the FBI, but also including various U.S. attorney's offices, including New York, including in Washington, D.C., and so Barr's decision, apparently, to pick up Brady, who was certainly a very, very conservative figure who was appointed and worked for Trump and then said he would not work for a Democratic uh, president and left, uh, that that choice introduced a lot of um, sort of, at, at a minimum, administrative friction. I mean, you're just creating another actor when you're trying to streamline things, when you're trying to get all of the information together in one set of hands who understands whether or not somebody's credible, whether or not something's disinformation, whether or not somebody's in touch with Russian agents. It's best to put that all together. And when you set up some guy, you know, kind of in the Western District of Pennsylvania, it, it seemed like a rather heavy-handed attempt to politicize the process. And, you know, my read is, in fact, that is what happened. I mean, it continues. Mm -hmm. uh, the uncorroborated Biden bribery claims originated in FD-1023, which is an FBI form that simply anytime an informant or a confidential human source provides you information, you record it in a 1023 that, or, you know, confidential human source, you'll hear the acronym CHS. Anybody in the FBI is going to talk about having a CHS uh, is how that's uh, referred to. Now, Brady said that, quote, the 1023 had indicia of credibility sufficient to merit further investigation, unquote. So his team handed it off to David Weiss. Now, Brady acknowledged that he did not review some exculpatory material regarding the supposed bribe. He said his team never saw an interview that Zlachevsky gave to Giuliani ally Lev Parnas, because that was in the hands of New York, both the U.S. Attorney's Office and, New York and the FBI, where he undercut what he supposedly told the FBI informant about bribes. Brady also said he didn't review a public denial from then-Ukrainian President Petro Poroshenko that Joe Biden tried to pressure him to end the Burisma investigation. Quote, had we been aware of this, we would have definitely shared that with Delaware when we shared the 1023 with him. So I, I, again, this strikes me, this is like a little mini John Durham. We don't really know what's going on. We don't really know what Russia was doing in 2015 and 2016, but we're going to cherry pick some information originating from Rudy Giuliani in isolation, not have the benefit of all these other witnesses and what they're saying, what Lev Parnas and whatever recordings or anything else he's telling us, what information the U.S. intelligence community might have about the fact that Rudy Giuliani is being targeted and successfully targeted by Russian disinformation. None of that is just, well, no, I've read it and I think it, it was worth passing on to David Weiss because that is what Bill Barr told me to do, in my opinion. So I, I don't know. I mean, I'm I don't know what you think. I'm waiting to see. I haven't seen the full transcript yet, uh, but the fact that you know James Comer has not eagerly rolled it out onto the uh, Weaponization or Judiciary Committee website tells you a lot about what is or isn't in that interview. Well, yeah, and that's the reason you haven't seen the full transcript yet, right? Because it's devastating to Comer's case. <laughs> so. Of course, like, like every other single, yes, ounce of evidence in the universe. 
Yep. And our friend, Representative Jamie Raskin, put this all in a letter to James Comer this week. <laughs> and you know, we know James Comer is the Republican chair of the Oversight Committee. This letter, it's a scorcher. He also attached 12 other letters to it. So it's very long, but the initial letter is, is pretty short, the, the 13th letter. And here's just here's what it says. As you know, and I'm just pulling out some key phrases, some key parts of this letter. Jamie Raskin says, as you know, Representative Comer, throughout this year, I've sent you 12 different letters registering my objection to your continuing distortion of key facts in the majority's investigation of President Biden, including false statements about the process, misleading descriptions of witness testimony and completely deceptive statements to the American people about the findings in the committee's Biden family probe. You have not seen fit to reply to even one of my letters. So imagine my complete surprise in receiving your October 26th letter expressing an interest in the facts. Exclamation point. He goes, to, he goes on to say, and I'm reading this word for word. This is Jamie Raskin. Look, I know that our first and almost certainly final impeachment hearing was a devastating disappointment when your star witness defected from their assigned missions uh, with one testifying that he did not believe that the current evidence would support articles of impeachment. That must be frustrating indeed. <laughs> but please, Mr. Chairman, I ask you not to take your frustrations out on me. It wasn't my fault. Those were your witnesses. Since that hearing, you claim to have uncovered yet more bombshell evidence, bombshells in quotes, that again proved to be a resounding dud. For example, last week, you eagerly hyped the shocking revelation that, when he was a private citizen, Joe Biden committed the apparently unforgivable sin of lending his own brother James $200,000, which James repaid 48 days later. Furthermore, just last week, two U.S. attorneys, Scott Brady, that's who you were just talking about, Pete, who served as President Donald Trump's U.S. attorney for the Western District of Pennsylvania, and Martin Estrada, the current U.S. attorney for the Central District of California, became just the latest witnesses to debunk your theory of political interference in the Hunter Biden investigation through the manipulation of David Weiss. So now... In a hopeless effort to reheat the stale leftovers of an indigestible conspiracy theory and serve them up for the GOP's impeachment drive, you're going back to the discredited and debunked Ukraine Burisma allegations concocted by Rudy Giuliani and his right-hand man, Lev Parnas, both of whom you now refuse to call as witnesses before this committee. Your statements about this Form FD-1023 are just one illustrative example of your misrepresentations and distortions of key investigative facts in this investigation. For example, you have also falsely claimed that witness interviews actually conducted by committee staff never happened, referred to a fugitive from justice charged with multiple felonies as a very credible witness, suggested you were present at a transcribed interview that you did not attend, repeatedly mischaracterized the statements of witnesses in interviews while refusing to publicly release the interview transcripts. That's what I was talking about there. Claimed that the National Archives and Records Administration failed to turn over records to the committee when they were actively cooperating. You wrongly claimed that a transcribed interview suggested the president was involved in his family's business dealings. You incorrectly asserted that suspicious activity reports, which you routinely mischaracterize as bank violations, implicate President Biden in wrongdoing. You dishonestly suggested that the president had the prosecutor of Ukraine fired as part of a bribery scheme. You falsely accused the Biden-Harris administration of obstructing the committee's investigation and interfering with a U.S. attorney's uh, investigation, namely David Weiss. And you falsely denied the existence of bank records in the committee's possession. I'm attaching all one dozen of my unanswered letters for your convenience and sharing them with the Republican members of the committee whom you invited to sign on to your letter. 
I eagerly await your reply and remain very truly yours, Jamie Raskin. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's fantastic. He also took like uh, when when uh, the, oh, the House Santos failed letter. to censure the Santos letter, he <laughs> took it and like circled and redlined all his grammar errors and like <laughs> corrected it. And then also said it's, you know, it's not... You, you you can still resign, essentially, or it's not too late. To, yeah, P.S. It's not shameful. Or it's not shameful to resign, right? <laughs> Just a gem of a a man. National. All treasure. good points. None of which none of which will be responded to because it's a complete load of crap. And you know, last I heard is that they're talking about potentially calling uh, Hunter Biden and you know potentially other Bidens as witnesses as early as next week. Just you got to have some you know continued stumbling along for that yeah. committee. I mean, you know, all this information went to David Weiss. David Weiss didn't bring charges. They reached a sort of plea deal. Uh, and when Hunter Biden's lawyers found out that it didn't, it wasn't a transactional immunity deal, they said, no, we're not, fuck this deal. We're, <laughs> we're going to plead not guilty. Go ahead and charge us, big fella. Uh, he did bring the gun charge, which will probably end up being unconstitutional once the Supreme Court is done yep. with it. Uh, which makes the other two charges immaterial for lying on the form to get the gun. Uh, and so, you know, th there haven't been any tax charges at all. Um, and that's probably for several reasons, two of which are, first of all, there's probably not enough to bring charges. I mean, we've had, you normally Department of Justice just sues or does a civil thing like, hey, you owe us $2 million in taxes, Roger Stone, pay it. Giuliani has been accused of the IRS for not paying $550,000 in taxes. They're like, just pay him. You know, he hasn't been charged. Uh, so there's probably just not enough to bring charges. But also this whole dog and pony show in the clown car Republican House Committee on Oversight or Weaponization or whatever, whichever committee it was, when they brought the IRS agents in to testify about David Weiss, that probably wrecked any case. You know how we always say like, oh, well, why don't you uh, testify or talk about the ongoing investigation or hand over documents in an ongoing criminal investigation. It's so that you don't screw up that criminal investigation. And if there were tax charges to be brought, that public testimony and all that BS probably wrecked it. So, I mean, you know, David Weiss been doing this for five years. Everybody was expecting Hillary to be in Gitmo by now. And you too, Pete. Mm. But, um, you know, all we got out of it was kind of a, a, a gun, like kind of a deal that, and then maybe half a gun charge <laughs> and, and they're, they're pissed. Yeah. And it's still, look, I mean, the other thing with tax charges is tax division at Main Justice at DOJ headquarters does have to sign off on a lot of, uh, if not all, ty certain types of tax crimes, felonies. And, you know, it happened, you know, and I think Andrew Weissman has talked about it or tweeted about it, but, you know, was talking about it in the context of some of the things he was doing with Mueller uh, with regard to Manafort and others. So this is something that even as a special counsel, Weiss is going to have to mother may I to main justice tax division to get approval for that. Not saying it won't happen, but certainly, you know, it is going to get an additional level of approval that's needed. So it, it, it at a minimum, is uh, going to slow it down to the extent I agree with you. I think there's several inconsistencies that have been sort of thrown into the public record or put into the public consciousness on the basis of some of those IRS whistleblowers, in particular material that they may or may not have turned over uh, in a prompt manner that would be required for discovery purposes. So I just, I, my, my gut, again, I, I have seen nothing specifically alleging r misconduct or wrongdoing, but there is some oddness there that I think as a prosecutor, you are taking on risk potentially as you 
if you decide to bring these charges. They said they are. Um, they haven't yet. So I guess we'll, we'll see soon enough. Yeah, I, I wouldn't if I didn't want to screw up my win-loss record. But man, that's just me. Well, thank you again, everybody. Thanks to all our new patrons. My gosh, so many. We're going to keep getting to you. Thank you so much for supporting the show, supporting independent journalism, supporting me and Pete and MSW Media. We really, really appreciate it. Um, if you want to become a patron, that's patreon.com slash aisle45pod, A-I-S-L-E-4-5-P-O-D. I hope everyone has a wonderful rest of your week and enjoys the Ivanka testimony. Mm, um, we'll yes. be talking about that on Poor the next Ivanka episode. Se- separated the hardship of separation from her family to go testify. Yeah, it's a school week. It's real hard for my 19 nannies to, you know, coordinate without me there. Anyway, thank you again so much, and uh, we'll, we'll see you next week. Any final thoughts before we get out of here, Pete? Nope, all kinds of stuff going on. So we are rolling, rolling into the uh, holidays with a, a full plate of everything Trump. So uh, look forward to talking with everybody next week. All right, we'll see you then. I've been Allison Gill. And I'm Pete Struck. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. <laughs>